Today's scripture comes from the book of Genesis, chapters 1 and 2. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God endures forever. All right. Well, welcome to Exilic. If we haven't had the privilege of meeting yet, my name is Aaron, and um, I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, a few weeks ago, we started a collection of sermons on Genesis, which will take us all the way to the end of the year. And someone recently asked me, you know, why are we looking at Genesis? And that's a great question, because we are going to be in this book for a very long time. Well, I don't know if any of you have ever been to Athens before. Uh, but if you've gone to Athens, you've probably been to Mars Hill or the Areopagus. And um, I actually have a rock from Mars Hill that I forgot to bring today, but it still stands to this day. But 2,000 years ago, the Apostle Paul stood on Mars Hill in Athens. And it was on this hill that he was debating with a lot of Greek philosophers that were like the children and descendants of Socrates. And the big debate that Paul was having with all of these uh, Athenians was, what does Jerusalem have to do with Athens? Or what does Jesus have to do with my Greek philosophical way of living life? And what's interesting is that because the Greek audience there did not have a Jewish background, Paul doesn't begin to articulate his faith with Abraham as a patriarch of our faith in Genesis 12, but rather he begins not with Genesis 12, but Genesis 1 with creation, how we got here and who we are. And I think similarly, as we think about this island that we live in called Manhattan or New York, I think if we were to look at this like Mars Hill and the Apostle Paul were here having a debate with secular New Yorkers, I think the similar question would be maybe not what does Jerusalem have to do with Athens, but what does Jerusalem have to do with New York City? What does Jesus have to do with the way that I live my life today? And I think rather than beginning with Genesis 12, I think we need to take a page out of the Apostle Paul and begin with Genesis 1, how it all began. Because we can't understand our present cultural moment until we understand our past. Particularly, we can't understand who we are as a people unless we understand where exactly we came from. The writer Ralph Ellison was once asked the question, would you say that the search for identity is primarily an American theme? And Ellison responded by saying, it isn't primarily an American theme, it is the American theme, the search for identity. This is why Tim Keller said that the search for our identity is the most untouchable moral value in our society today. The Bible, however, grounds our identity, our authentic selves, in one Latin phrase, and that is that we are the imago dei, or we are made in the image of God. And so read with me verse 27 where it says this. So God created mankind in his own image, in the image of God, he created them. This is the Imago Dei. So 
one question that my wife Hannah and I often get asked is, um, which of our two daughters looks more like who? So some will say the oldest looks like me, the youngest looks like her. Others will say, no, the oldest looks like Hannah, the youngest looks like me. Some will say they're twins. Um, but the point is, to a greater or lesser degree, they mirror or they image who we are. And we see the same language in Genesis 5 about Adam when it said that Adam had a son in his own likeness, in his own image, and he named him Seth. And so the question for us then is this, how do we as people, how do we image God? I mean, does God have two eyes, a nose, a mouth? How do we image God? And I don't think it necessarily means physically per se that we image Him, uh, but I, I think it means something a little bit more deeper than just that. And I think one key word to help us unlock what it means to be made in the image of God from Genesis 1 is a word that you may not have thought of before, and that is the word separate. In Genesis 1, God separates light from darkness. He separates the moon and the sun. He separates the land from the sea. He separates the first six day from the seventh day, and He sets apart the seventh day and calls it holy. And one of the things that these separations or differentiations do is that it helps us understand the identity of a particular thing, whether it's light or darkness, the sun or the moon, the land or the sea. These separations or differentiations give us a better sense of the identity of those particular things. But one of the things that we have a tendency to do as humanity is that we blur those differentiations or we collapse those distinctions into one. Or as my former professor Peter Jones would say, we take the two-isms in the Bible, and then we make them into one-isms. And when that happens, it causes a lot of identity confusion. And so I'll give us a few examples of the ways that we collapse those distinctions or separations. So in pantheism, whereas in Scripture we see a creator-creature distinction, in pantheism, those creator-creature distinctions are now collapsed and blurred into one. So now the sun is God, the moon is God, the stars are God, the rock, the trees. Um, so, so peoples that believe in pantheism see God everywhere in this material world. In humanism, there is no God. So there is sort of this collapse again of the creator-creature distinction. And because there's nothing more transcendent than people in humanism, we are God. We determine what life is all about. We determine how we live our lives and how society should go. It's interesting that in Genesis 3, the serpent tempts Adam and Eve by collapsing that creator-creature distinction again, and they say, if you eat of the fruit, you will be like God. So he's blurring the creator-creature distinction again. In evolution, we see a blurring again. Whereas God makes a, dis a distinction between man and animals, in evolution, again, we see that collapse into one, that we are animals. So Richard Dawkins, the famous biologist on Twitter, said that we are descended from monkeys, though often touted as a terrible mistake, it really isn't. So there's a blurring that's taking place between us and animals. I was actually talking with um, a skeptic that was coming to our church, uh, that came to our church on Easter, 
And one of the things that um, she rightly said is that one of the distinctions between humans and animals is that humans ask the question, why? So you, you'll never see an animal doing Rodin's thinker going, you know, cogito ergo sum, I think therefore I, like you'll never see animals philosophize in that way. But why is it that as humans we do? So she was able to see a distinction between us and animals. If I can give a personal story about my ethnicity, uh, whereas um, God uniquely made me Asian American, and specifically Korean American. I live a hyphenated life, right? And by the way, the Christian life is a hyphenated life. We're sinners, saints, in the world, but not of the world. Because of my shame of my own Korean heritage, I didn't want there to be a differentiation. I wanted to collapse and blur those things. I just wanted to be American, not, not realizing that my Koreanness was something that God has given to me as an image bearer of God. But I wanted to collapse. I just basically wanted to be white, to be accepted, not realizing that my ethnicity is a part of what it means to be an image bearer of God. Jesus is still very much today Jewish. When we get to heaven, we bring our ethnicity into eternity, which is why in Revelation 20, every tribe and every tongue sing to God. So it's not as though we lose our ethnicity. We still bring this to the table, but I collapsed it into one. In a lot of our gender-fluid debates today, the question is, is there a differentiation between male and female, or should we collapse those distinctions and make it more fluid and more blurry? In New York City, we collapse who we are with what we do, which is why the first question we ask after what your name is, what do you do? Because that's who you really are. And so our vocation, our careers, really is how we build our sense of identity. And I will say, in the next 15 or 20 years, the biggest collapse and blurring that's going to take place, the biggest, is between us and AI. I was on a flight last week, scrolling through the movies that were offered, and I saw some other passenger watching this movie called Megan. I, don't, I did not know what the movie was about, but I was like, but I'm, I'm a mirroring creature. So I saw them watching it, and I was like, I'll watch it too, right? So I put on Megan, I had no idea what it was about, but it's basically about AI. And the typical plot line of AI having a mind of its own and taking over humans and stuff like that. But there is another plot line within that movie. It's about a little girl who has this AI doll named Megan. And the little girl is unable to, no longer sees that doll as just machine, machinery, but she sees Megan as her real friend, like a real human being. And so what we saw there was a blurring or a collapse of humanity and machines. And I think in the next 15 or 20 years, that's going to be the biggest thing that we're going to be facing. But the point is this, all of us, not just some of us, but all of us tend to make blurrings and, and collapsing of some of the separations and the distinctions that God makes, which is why there's a lot of identity confusion today. But take a look with me at verse 7 when it says this, then the Lord God formed 
a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living being. I know that we use the word artisan a lot. Um, but, you know, what does it mean for something to be like artisan or an artisan piece of bread? It means that there was no machinery to help make that thing. It was made in a traditional way with human hands. And this is what God is doing here in verse 7 with his hands, not machines. With his own hands, the great artisan is making humanity out of the dust of the ground. And so what that means is from a biblical framework, if we're really going to understand our identity, our authentic self, we first have to understand our creator and our maker, and that is God. The more we know God, the more we know ourselves. The less we know God, the less we know ourselves. Similarly, if Pinocchio really wants to know who his authentic self is, he doesn't have to go on an adventure into New York City to figure out who he is. He first has to understand who his maker is, Geppetto. And the better Pinocchio understands Geppetto and why he made him, the better he can know himself. This is why sometimes orphans or those that are adopted, even in the most loving homes, they still go on a journey to find their biological parents because when they meet them or get to know them, it helps them understand their narrative better. And so and similarly, I would say the more we know who God is, our maker, where we come from, the better we can know ourselves. The less we know God, the less we know ourselves. This is why the theologian A.W. Tozer once said, what comes into our mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. But from a secular perspective where there is no God, how do you go about finding your authentic self? And I think the primary way that we uh, figure out who we are can be summarized very well from former Justice Anthony Kennedy when he said this, at the heart of liberty is the right to define one's own concept of existence. Just think about that for a moment, of meaning, of the universe, and of the mystery of human life. So whatever mode that we take, we define who we are and what the meaning of life is. And the typical way that we construct our identity can be summarized very well from Henry Nouwen. And he lists five ways that we typically construct our identity. The first is this, I am what I have. So this is a materialistically driven way of constructing your identity. Because I have all this stuff, I'm important. I am what I do, a very resume-driven way of constructing your identity. Number three, I am what other people say or think of me, which is a socially-driven way of constructing your identity. Number four, I am nothing more than my worst moment, which is a moral performance-driven way of constructing your identity. Or, I am nothing less than my best moment, which is also a performance-driven way of constructing your identity. Now, these are some ways that we construct our identity. However, I do want to add a sixth category that I actually think is the dominant way that as Americans we construct our identity. And it is this, I am what I feel, which is a very feelings-based, emotionally driven way of constructing our identity. And so here in this framework, our true north isn't up there. Our true north and compass is right in here. 
And by the way, this is the dominant theme of every Disney movie over the past 15 years. The quest for the authentic self begins with how I feel. So it's a very emotionally driven way of constructing your identity. Now, as you think about these six things, and as you think about your own personal life, which of these ways of constructing your identity do you relate with the most? How are you building your life in your sense of identity? Which of these six things? And as I think about the sixth one in particular, I am what I feel, one of the interesting things that the Bible says in Prophet Jeremiah 17.9 is this, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick who can understand it. Whereas our culture says, follow your heart or follow your feelings, the prophet Jeremiah says, no, there are times where you should listen to your feelings, but your feelings are fickle, your feelings are up and down, your feelings sometimes conflict with one another, your feelings change. And there are times then where you should not listen to your heart and what your feelings say. And yet, uh, with Disney, our secular culture, this is our modus operandi, this is our creed for the way that we construct our authentic selves. The Danish philosopher Soren Kierkegaard once said that of all deceivers, fear yourself the most. So the question is, if we can't even trust our feelings, who or what can we trust to understand who we are? Well, there's a very beautiful story uh, in the gospel accounts about a Samaritan woman at the well. And she has this bucket of water in the middle of the hot Middle Eastern day, and she's drawing water. And along comes Jesus. And the Samaritan woman had never met Jesus before in her life. But they begin talking together. And as they begin talking, uh, one of the things that Jesus says to her is that uh, you have had five husbands, and the man that you are now with is not your husband. And all of a sudden, she drops her bucket. And she's like, how did you know all that about me? And so she runs into the, the town square, and she begins telling everyone, come and meet a man that told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? And what she was saying there is, if there is a God and he made me, surely he knows me more exhaustively than I even know myself. You know, you know what, why we get counseling and therapy? Because we're strangers to our own feelings. But come and meet a man that told me everything I've ever done in my life. Could this be the Messiah? And there is a sense in which if God is the one that made us, he does know us more exhaustively than we even know ourselves. And the way that this great artisan makes us is a mirror. And the way that God made us is to mirror him and to reflect him and to image him, not physically, but that the children of God would display the character of God in their hearts. In that sense that we would mirror him and reflect him, or to use another word, I would say holiness. Now, the word separate is used a lot in Genesis 1, 
But there is another word that connotes the same kind of meaning, and that is the word holiness. For something to be holy, you separate it or you set it apart from everything else. So this is when the Old Testament pots and pans were declared holy because they were set apart for priestly ceremonial use. You set apart fine china for special occasions and special moments. You set it apart. And similarly, what God wants for every one of us as his image bearers is to be set apart, to be distinct and different from the rest of the world. It's interesting to me that out of all of God's attributes, there is only one attribute that is raised to the third level or third degree. And it's not even his love. Scripture never says God is love, love, love. But it does say that he is holy, holy, holy. And as his image bearers, he also wants us to be holy or to be set apart to mirror and to reflect him. The problem with sin is it doesn't set us apart for God, but sin sets us apart from God. Now there's a distance, a chasm that's there. So if you think about a mirror, if that's who we really are, when a mirror turns away from its object, it no longer reflects that object as it should, but it begins to reflect other things. And because we're made as mirrors, we cannot help but reflect things. So whether it's our celebrity culture, gonna dress like they dress, talk like they talk, vacation like they vacation, uh, uh, buy what they buy, or on f- our friends on social, we're gonna have the stuff they have, we're gonna travel like they travel. We are mirroring creatures, and, and not all mirroring is bad, but the more that mirror turns away from God to other things, the less we will reflect him and the more we will begin to reflect other things. So as you think about who you are, a mirror, as you think about your life, what do you think you tend to mirror or reflect the most? Your company, your coworkers, boss, people on social that you follow, influencers, who do you tend to mirror the most? Philip Yancey in What's So Amazing About Grace said, all too often the church holds up a mirror reflecting back the society rather than a window revealing a different way. We are not called just to be a mirror that reflects society, but a window that points to a different way. But the more that mirror is turned away from God, the more we lose our authentic selves and who we truly, truly are And as a result of that, we don't know how to live our lives. So uh, if you've been at our church for a little bit, I often uh, use this example when it comes to identity with a movie called Unknown. It's a bad movie, which is why it's like unknown to all of you. You've probably never seen it before. But there are five characters that wake up in a chemical warehouse, uh, and they've inhaled all these fumes. So they're all like blacked out. But when they wake up, they all have amnesia because of these chemical fumes. All they know is that three of them are criminals, two of them are cops, but they don't know who is who, the criminal or the cop. So a few minutes later, they get a phone call, it's the bad guys, they're like, we'll be there in an hour. So they hang up and now they're all nervous because they're trapped in this warehouse, they know the other bad guys are coming, but they don't know who the criminals are and they don't know who the cops are. And so finally, one of them says, how am I supposed to know how to act if I don't even know who I am? Do I act like the cop or do I act like the criminal? How am I supposed to know how to act 
if I don't even know who I am? And so my question to you is, who do you think you are? Who is your true, authentic self? Because if you don't even know who you are, how are you going to know how to act? And so our identity is crucial in understanding how we live out our life Monday through Friday. And what Scripture would say is that who we really are are marred masterpieces. So if you've been to Rome before in St. Peter's Basilica, you'll know that there's a, um, a statue called the Pieta that was made by Michelangelo, only statue that Michelangelo ever autographed. And if you look at the Pieta, it's a beautiful statue of Mary holding the crucified Jesus that was just let down from the cross. It's a very moving piece of art. And this treasure of Renaissance art stood in the basilica for largely 400 years undisturbed until in 1972, a vandal broke through with a hammer and began chipping and shattering away at Michelangelo's Pietà, Mary's nose, her arm, uh, her veil were all destroyed. And so experts came and they began to reassemble this marred masterpiece to become the treasure that it once was. And the Pietà is a good is a good illustration of who we are as image bearers of God. On the one hand, we are God's masterpiece, set apart from anything else in this world, the trees, the sun, animals, we are special. On the other hand, what sin does is that it has shattered us. It has marred us. So we are not the same as we once were. But what Jesus does is that he comes into this world and he himself is the perfect image of God. Uh, or as Colossians 1 would say, the Son is the image of the invisible God. John 14, Jesus says, whoever has seen me has seen the Father because he is the image of God. But what happens on the cross is that Jesus takes on all of our sin so that now he becomes a marred masterpiece so that we can be reconstructed and made whole. He takes on our sin so that we would not be shattered into a million pieces anymore. In 1 Corinthians 15, the Apostle Paul writes this, the first man was of the dust of the earth, the second man is of heaven. As was the earthly man, so are those who are of the earth. And as is the heavenly man, so also are those who are of heaven. And just as we have borne the image of the earthly man, we shall one, uh, so shall we bear the image of the heavenly man. And this is why Scripture talks so much about the language of being born again or being reconstructed. Because God is changing us back to that image more and more and more. Uh, and, I'll, and I'll close with this one story. So my daughters, um, one of the things I want to foster within them is a love for stories. So they're constantly asking me to tell them stories. And so one story that I often like to tell my daughters is a story of the eagle and the chickens. And one day this farmer goes into a forest and he finds a large eagle's egg. And seeing that this egg is abandoned, he takes that egg back to his farm 
but he places it next to all the chicken eggs. And so one day when the eagle's egg hatches and all the chickens also hatch, because we're mirroring creatures, the eagle thought that it was a chicken. And so when the chickens would peck around for the worms, the eagles would also peck around for the worms. When the chicken would just fly three feet in the air, the eagle would only fly three feet in the air because he's a chicken. But then one day, he looks up not three feet in the air, but 300 feet in the air. And he sees this majestic eagle soaring through the air. And he's like, wow, what is that? And all the chickens go, oh, that's an eagle. But we're chickens. We just peck around the ground and fly three feet in the air because we're chickens. But that's an eagle. But the eagle felt inside of him something ignite that something about living in this life was very unsatisfactory and unfulfilling, that there was something different about himself. But the ego would have never known that there was something special about him if he only looked to his own feelings. It was only when he looked not inside of himself, but outside of himself, that he realized who he really, really was. And you know what, similarly, I think the search for identity, it does not begin by looking inside at our feelings. But I think the search for identity does not begin by looking inside, but outside of ourselves, to the one that made us. That we are more than a sophisticated baboon. That we are here for a reason, not just by accident, because we won the, the cosmic Russian roulette, that there's a reason, a purpose, and that you are special, that there is something very distinct about you. But what that means then is this. If that's who you are, you have to reflect that to the world. <laughs> there has to be something different, set apart with the way that you live your life. You can't just mirror everything else that you see. You have to mirror the one that created all things. And one of the things that you will discover is that the more you follow Jesus, the more and more you follow him, you don't become less of yourself, you actually become more of yourself. That there is an image of God that is within you that needs to be released out of you. But that can only happen when that mirror is facing him instead of our culture, instead of to our own feelings, by someone outside of himself. And when you do that, when you live your life as your true self, your true authentic self, a child of God, that changes your sense of meaning and purpose with the way that you live your life. And so let me ask you again, who do you think you really are. Let's pray together. Lord, we live in a time that can be very confusing, and it is during these times that we need a lot of clarity. And we thank you for your word, which in many ways is like a mirror that reflects our hearts and who we are. And so help us to continually gaze at the mirror of your word, 
to find our true authentic selves, that who we really are at the end of the day are loved sons and daughters of God. And in light of that, help us to continually unleash that image of God to the rest of the world and our culture. In your name I pray, amen.